Right, it's uh, really great uh, to be back. We had a, a terrific missions trip to Spain. But uh, today I want to uh, ask a question which may not seem that obvious, and that is this. What difference does it make when a church starts in a town? What difference does it make to the town uh, that we hear as a church, if anything? Or let me ask a question this way. What difference has the church made in your life? if anything. Let me just suggest that this is an incredible thing that God does on planet Earth, that God transforms lives, and it happens through the church, and it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. The fact that God knows each one of us personally uh, is really interesting, and it's transformative. But simultaneously, God is interested in all people, in all places throughout the world. And when a church comes to town, it has surprising benefits to the town. Now, often the town would say the exact opposite. It would say, you know, uh, here we are on South Street, and we are non-profit, and we don't pay taxes, and you know, the town could do with the taxes, and blah, 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 and what good is a church anyway? Wait a bit. I want to uh, talk about that a little bit today. Uh, it, to me, it's, uh, it's really interesting what God does or doesn't do in a town. There was a very fascinating study done in the 1900s, and uh, you can put a little book up that tells a story. But uh, the story is about a guy by the name of Richard Dugdale. And in, 19, in 1877, he was visiting prisons in New York. And uh, what he found was something very, very fascinating. He found that inmates with 42 different last names were all descendants from this one person called Max. And Max was born around 1720. He was from uh, Dutch stock, and he was a hard drinker. He was idle. He was irreverent. He was uneducated. He was an atheist. He was an ungodly man. And he married a woman who was just like him. Now, this is what, as this guy, uh, Richard Dugdale, pressed in, this is what he found. He found that his descendants, he had 310 were professional vagrants. 440 lived lives that were wretched. 100 were alcoholics. 60 were professional thieves. 140 were prostitutes. 130 were in prison for an average of 13 years. And seven of those were for murder. Out of the 20 that were in prison, 10 learned their trade while in prison. In 1900, at the cost of one and a half million dollars. Now, can you imagine what that would be today? Then, none of them made any contribution whatsoever to society. Then, in contrast, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was born in Connecticut. He was called to be a pastor at a church in Northampton, uh, up the road here. And uh, he was the exact opposite. He married a very godly woman by the name of Sarah, and he plowed his uh, life into the church and to making a difference. And so they tracked what was the impact of Jonathan Edwards's lineage. His descendants, 
300 of them became clergymen, missionaries or theologians. A hundred became college professors. A hundred became attorneys. Thirty became judges. Sixty became physicians. Forty were authors of classic books. Fourteen were presidents of universities. Three were United States congressmen. And one was the vice president of the United States to Thomas Jefferson. I mean, you are talking about the impact of a legacy or the impact that your life can make on your descendants. Or you can look at it, what difference does a, a church make when it comes to town? Well, it greatly transforms for the good if the church is doing what the church should do, the people in that town. If we come to know the love of God, if we allow God to transform us, life is totally transformed in us and all those around us. Now, for some of you, you became a Christian lady in life, like me, in my 20s. I can tell you what my life was like before, and I can tell you what my life was like after Christ. Some of you just grew up in the church, so there's not this great differentiation. But what I am saying is when I look at my life, church and God, well, Jesus transforming me, but being part of church, greatly changed my life and has greatly influenced my family, my friends, and, you know, as a clergy person, uh, those that I have the opportunity, like you, to talk to today. And so when a church comes to town, the greatest thing that it does is it starts transforming the people in town for good. Now, we also do outreaches, we serve the town, you know, we help out wherever we can, and we love to do that. But primarily, when people's hearts are changed, you know, from being an alcoholic to being a non-alcoholic, to being somebody that's got a career track of being a criminal, to somebody that's got a career track of being, you know, a, an attorney, being transformed by God for who God has created you to be, to be something great is just the most unbelievably wonderful, fascinating thing that God does. And He does it all the time. He's still doing it. He transforms us. It's really, really incredible. Not only is God interested in transforming you, He's interested in transforming your family, your friends, those around you. He's interested in transforming your town. He's interested in us transforming our region. God is interested. Now, here's the reach. He's interested in using you to transform the nations. Now, I would hazard a guess. You did not wake up this morning thinking, okay, I'm going to go to church so that I can realize how God is going to use me to transform the nations. I mean, that's just like a, okay, most of your prayer language would be like, God, just help me today. God, I'm really struggling. God, you know, if you can just direct me, God, I need a little bit more money. God, you know, that's your prayer life. Uh, most of you are not waking up, if you're like me anyway. God, like, use me today to transform my town and the nations of the world. But maybe we should be praying that way because that's God's intent is to use us that way. God wants us to be a light to the nations. God wants us to be a light to our friends. But it happens because we are transformed and we are different and people see something different in us and they say, what is it that you got? Now, I want, we, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel and uh, the section that I'm jumping into is, in Ezekiel is pretty uh, dense. Uh, it's pretty complex. But the tagline that I want us to focus on here 
is that God says this. He says, the nations will know that I am the Lord. Wait a minute. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is like a big deal to God that the nations would know that he is the Lord. It's a big deal to God that his name is kept holy. It's a big deal to God that he created this universe and he's holding it together and he loves everybody in every country, no matter what religion they are, he loves them and he desires that we would know him and know his love. Okay, so that's quite a, that's quite a, a challenge for us. Let me just put this uh, Ezekiel passage in context. Now, if you haven't been coming to all the different services, I highly recommend you listen to our podcasts. Stephen, two weeks ago, did a great job of acknowledging that Ezekiel is not everybody's favorite book in the Bible. Uh, you know, if you're new to reading the Bible, I'd highly recommend you don't start in Ezekiel. I don't even recommend you start in Genesis. I recommend you start in John, the Gospel. But at some point in your Christian growth, you want to start getting into the Old Testament because there's gold in the Old Testament for our lives. But it's just not that obvious. And the reason is because if you start reading Ezekiel, you'll start seeing that God is kind of like, uh, um, you know, at the worst, you'd say vengeful or uh, vindictive or... but. What God, the aspect of God's personality that we're getting a hold of is how radically God loves us and how radically He wants us to follow Him and how greatly disappointed He is when we don't. Now, let me give you like the big overall picture uh, of the Bible here in like very quickly. God chooses the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, when they were slaves in Egypt. They had nothing going for them. Their lives were miserable. They were working seven days a week. There is no ways that these people could have made any claim of greatness in and of themselves. And God, on his own volition, says, I choose you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, not for your greatness, but for my greatness, God's. I'm going to do something ridiculously impossible. I'm going to get you out of slavery, and I'm going to take you to the promised land to, uh, to Israel, and I'm going to bless you like you've never been blessed before. In fact, you're going to be so ridiculously blessed. You're going to have peace. You're going to have prosperity. You're going to have joy. You're going to be blessed in every which way you can imagine. Your family are going to be blessed. Your kids are going to be blessed. You're going to have so much blessing that the big idea is all the other nations in the world are going to say, I want in. I want what's going on there. How is it possible? And when the rest of the world sees this, they're going to desire God, and God is going to use the Jewish people to spread that news to all the other nations. One problem. They didn't do that. They failed on their side of the bargain. God did the impossible. He did the miracles. He opened the Red Sea. He got them into Israel. He you know, opened up the land for them. He blessed them in every which way. But people, you and I, are sinful, meaning we don't understand, we don't appreciate, we don't thank God, and we always think, okay, God, you got me this far. Uh, thank you very much. But from now on, I'm going to be in the driver's seat, and I'll get us to, to where I want to go. And the, the Jewish people just made terrible, terrible, terrible mistakes. And finally, God says, okay, if that's what you want, you have free will, you do whatever you want. 
I'll just leave you to be. And it's going to be terrible because you are greedy. You think you can do it on your own. I'll just leave you. I'll just ignore your prayers and I'll disappear. And bad things started happening. I mean, it was catastrophic to the point that the people got totally consumed by the uh, nations around them. They were forced into exile. And then Ezekiel comes along and he says, okay, I warned you that this was going to happen. It is now happening. Now I want to give you hope. I'm going to give, so give six like night visions, six dreams. And he says, this is going to be ridiculous. You're going to be suffering in captivity. But once again, I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to do something that's never happened before. I'm going to get you out of your slavery, out of your ridiculous position. And I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. And you're going to be blessed people again. Unbelievably, that's exactly what happens. Now, we pick it up in chapter 39, uh, and let me just uh, pray, and then let me read this uh, chapter to you, or the section from it. Let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would empower my preaching. I pray that we could experience your love, that we would see how you are in control of our lives, of the nations, and that you want us to be involved in your plans. And when we do Life is really rewarding and fulfilling. But Lord, it's living according to your ways and your decrees. And when we do that, a life is so rich and rewarding, just as you promised it would be. So Lord, just empower this preaching. We welcome your Holy Spirit to move in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you've got your phone, uh, why don't you open it to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 21. Even better, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it. And if you want to be like Moses and you've got a tablet, you can do that too. Okay, 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 lame joke, but there we go. All right, so uh, I'm parachuting into verse 21. And uh, it's difficult to just parachute in. And it's like, okay, what's being said before and how does this fit in context? But I, I actually can't fully do that. I just want to stay focused on what I want to get to here today. So excuse the parachuting in. And it starts off this way in verse 21 of chapter 39 of Ezekiel. In this way, I will demonstrate my glory to the nations. Okay, in what way? Well, I don't have time to go there. You can read that. But I want you to notice that God is interested in His glory being demonstrated to the nations. Okay, this is like a big concept. Everyone will see the punishment I have inflicted on them and the power of my fist when I strike. Ooh. And from that time on, the people of Israel will know that I am, their, I am the God, I am the Lord, their God. So God is trying to be very um, helpful here. He's saying, look, you didn't follow me. You have seen the ramifications. But I want to point out that I do love you, and I have a plan for you, and you will know that I am large and in charge. Verse 23, the nations will then know why Israel was sent away to exile. It was punishment for sin, for they were very unfaithful to their God. You know, and we in our arrogance, we read the Bible, and we say, oh, that's so mean. Your God is punishing them, you know. And from God's standpoint, he's like, are you kidding me? 
I have given them a chance again and again and again and again and again and again. People have said, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'll do it my way. I'm smarter than you. And then God says, therefore, I turned away from them and let their enemies destroy them. In other words, you know, when we turn away from God, maybe we also turning away from God's protection over us and God's blessing on us without realizing it. I turned my face away and punished them because of their defilement of their sins. Now, you're going to say, well, what are their sins? Well, here's a little secret. Read chapter 22 of Ezekiel. Now, he has another little highly recommended pastoral note. Do not read chapter 22 to your kids as bedtime reading. This won't go down well. Okay, do not read chapter 22 to your kids. But do read chapter 22 to see, like, okay, what's actually going on here? Now, of course, every teenager is going to go home and is like, chapter 22, it's my favorite chapter. I'm not allowed to read this. Pastor said, don't read chapter 22. He's not going to preach on it. It's too, like, bad. It's like, why is it so bad? Okay, all the teens will read it, and uh, they'll know chapter 22. Moving on. So now this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will end the captivity of my people. God is giving hope. He's saying, okay, this is what's happened, but it will come to an end. I have a plan. I do want the best for them. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. Now, friends, there's a parallel going on. It's not just then. It's happening right now. You know, we are living in an age where there are a, very, there are a lot of high-profile um, disasters happening in church. I mean, from sex scandals in the Catholic Church to Protestant preachers that are messing up. I mean, it's high profile, and the average person not part of church doesn't think a whole lot about church. I mean, it's like, okay, the church, a bunch of hypocrites, you know, the priests are unsafe. And I mean, it's just not a good time to be around because there's a similarity where the people that are supposed to be in the pulpits living authentic godly lives are not. And it's not good. But at the same time, this is when God starts moving. Because God will always use His church. And He will always love His people. And God is not so interested in your reputation, but He's very interested in His own reputation. And God will let the church name go through mud, but He will eventually, it'll rise from the ashes and God's name will be glorified. Just as when Jonathan Edwards started the Great Awakening and preaching in Northampton, Massachusetts, and people start realizing, wait, God can move and God can transform and God can uh, bring good things out of the disaster. God still has plans for, for the church and for the nations. But let me just not get too sidetracked. Verse 26, they will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they have come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. God is still interested in using the Jewish people to display His holiness to all the nations in Ezekiel in that time. Because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will leave none of my people behind, and I will never again turn my face uh, from them, for I will pour out my Spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the Lord, 
God have spoken. Now, here's the interesting thing. When these prophets were preaching, it was like a dual prophetic word. It was a word for the, Israeli, the Israelites in that day, which is the obvious take on this thing. But simultaneously, if you read the section where Paris showed it in, uh, you will see that God is talking about another time period, which we're still waiting for. Like God is still going to return. Jesus is going to return. And God is going to have a time when all the nations will recognize him and will acknowledge him. And there is going to be a, a time of discomfort and, and problems. And so you're reading Ezekiel. And, and one of the hard things when you read it is like, is this for then only or is it for the future or is it both? And it's both. So you have to kind of read it with a parallel thought. And uh, you'll see a lot of parallels here to the book of Revelation, especially at the end of the book of Revelation. So God is interested in transforming us individually, our towns, and indeed the nations. That's what God wants to do. Two very, very uh, well-known verses to this point. First John 3:16, "For this is how God loved the world, the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is in, interested in you individually and he's interested in the whole world. It's just the way God, God works. The Great Commission, which is our vision here for our church, is this: Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, the nations for us, firstly and foremost, would be right here at Hopkinton. Our primary focus and vision and motive is that we could influence you uh, so that you would become passionate followers of Jesus and that your family would be blessed and your friends would be blessed and that you would want to see your friends and family come to know Christ and you would want to see them experience the joy that you've experienced and you would want to see your friends, family and whoever you associate with be transformed from the inside by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, that's the, the Great Commission. But God is saying, but it doesn't stop there. I'm interested in not only Hopkinson. I'm interested in the surrounding towns. I'm interested in the nation. I'm interested in all the nations. And so when God says, go into all the nations, I mean, he's calling us to go into all the nations. Now, here's the mysterious part. It's like, okay, God, what do I do? How, how, do, how am I part of that? You know, that's kind of like a big vision. And God is saying, you are part of it. And I want you to be part of it. And I want you to be thinking about it. And it's like, okay, but you know, exactly how? God uses churches and uses you as part of a church to do this. And uh, we just got back from Spain uh, where it's been really just an interesting uh, journey for, for myself and for Liz and I who've gone there. And, and I want to just paint this picture for you uh, briefly. Because we all struggle to figure out what is God doing in our lives and how can I experience this joy. Now, I've been going to Spain for like 15 years. And for most of those years, I've come back very frustrated and dejected. Mostly like this. It's like, okay, I went on this trip. I spent a lot of money. I spent time. And I got no clue what difference I made on that trip. I mean, this would be for me for like year in. And year out, we'd go, we'd go as a part of a team, 
We'd go and pray all over Spain. We're part of the vineyard movement. And the vineyard movement started with this simple idea. Like, can we put churches in towns and make the town, can the town be transformed as a result of starting new churches in each town? And so the vineyard started like in the 80s and we grew planting churches all over. And there's this vision or this desire to effectively have a vineyard church like a McDonald's. Like, you know, everywhere you go in every town, there's like a McDonald's, there'd be a vineyard church. And, and from our standpoint, that would be awesome. You know, it'd be awesome, not because woo, the vineyard's great. No, it'd be awesome because God is great and God is using the church, whether it be the vineyard or other churches, but using the church to make a difference. But the similar vision is what we felt with Spain. We were saying, how can we, as a, as a missionary-minded church, go to Spain with this desire? We want to see vineyard churches in Spain run by Spaniards, where these churches then indeed start other churches. Okay, that, that was the vision. And uh, my colleagues have been going to Spain since 1993, and they just go every single year. Uh, in fact, I spoke to Don Andreessen because he's just been faithful to this. I said, Don, how many times have you been to Spain? And he said, I think it's 79 times. I'm like, 79 times? I mean, like, okay, I'm just a beginner. You know, it's like, and he's, he's gone year in, year out, like nothing, 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 just ex- hoping God would do something. Now, on this particular trip, we saw the fruit of all those years in the past. And let me just say, it's very, very rewarding. I mean, it's just like super exciting. So uh, if you put up the one picture of the conference in, in Barcelona. So the conference theme was multiplication. Uh, we're in the city of Barcelona, and we, we've tried hard over the last few years to try and get a, a model established vineyard church that would be vibrant and that could be like the model church for Spain and that this church would be so great that it would start other churches. And uh, indeed, that's exactly what, we w- what has happened. It's been absolutely remarkable. This church is like 300 people, and uh, it's vibrant. It's mostly you know, people in their 30s. The worship is just off the charts, fantastic. The energy level, it's like right up there. Uh, I, I mean, it's just incredible. So the next slide, uh, here is a church plant. Okay, so finally this vision is now being realized. These 70 people were part or were part of the Barcelona Vineyard, and they are going to start another church in Barcelona with those 70 people. And so we were at the conference, and we're saying, okay, we bless them, and we release them. Now you go and start a church. You go make an impact in that suburb, and you do that again. You indeed go and plant another church. Like I said, this has been like since 1993, and finally we're seeing it happen. There's a twofold process going on here. My head is going, that's great for Barcelona. What about Hopkinton? Why can't we do that? You know, and so at the same time you say, I'm trying to give, but at the same time I'm like, this is so wonderful. Why can't we launch a church plan of 70 people? I mean, imagine if we, like, okay, no, I don't want to launch a church of 70 people. We're too small. And like, we'd be like, okay, nobody left. But if we were 300 people, we could do this, which is like the whole idea. I don't want to grow a church that's just big for the sake of being big, but I do want to grow a church that's big for the sake of being effective, like 
can we start other churches and and yeah that that's exciting that's that's super exciting there's so many parallels that uh, i could have i could talk about and we'll talk about it more uh, tomorrow night if you, you want to come out and listen to all the details of our trip and what's happening but suffice to say is that god is using you individually to fulfill god's big worldwide plan simply because you show up to this church simply because you contribute to this church i mean if you tithe to this church part of what your money is going to is we give three percent of everything we get to the vineyard nationally because we like the idea that the vineyard nationally in america wants to grow and have healthy churches over and above that uh, i contribute to two partnerships one in dominican republic which i've just gotten part of and to spain and the whole idea there is like can a whole bunch of churches together chip in a little bit of money to pay for those that can go and will go to spain to fulfill this this vision i mean it's 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 amazing what's now starting to unfold and you know probably the final story so we went first to Cordova, which is Paco. You met, many of you were here in the summer. You met Paco, and we're partnering with him, and we're trying to get his church to be vibrant. We're trying to get his church to, to you know, grow and be effective. And so we spent some time down there. But at the same time, uh, we, long story, which I can't share uh, all the details of, uh, we got given another opportunity. And so another church uh, in another town, Alcala, said, hey, Rob, can you come back and run our churches like family? They do a family retreat. Can you preach at our retreat? Can you run that whole thing? And I'm thinking, wow, what an incredible opportunity that now a non-vineyard church is saying, hey, hey, we like what's happening and we, like, we would like to be part of, and can you bring, and it's like, yes, yes, we, yes, we can. And God is starting to cross-connect people and skills. And there's something really, really uh, interesting that's happening there. All that to say, it takes commitment from the Lord to do these things. God is going to ask you and He's going to ask me to do things that will make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, you know, for some of you, the uncomfortable thing is just parting with money. There's a whole idea about just tithing. It's like... I just, it's uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, that's what God wants you to do. Why? Because He wants the church to be vibrant and He wants us to uh, be effective in missions. God will ask you to do things individually with your time that's uncomfortable. For instance, on a previous trip a, a few years ago, the guy from Costa Rica who oversees the vineyard of Central America, uh, he's planted like 30 churches in Costa Rica and like 30 churches in Central America. I mean, this guy, for me, is an absolute delight to hang with because he's a strategic thinker, and I just love the, what he's thinking and what he's saying. But when you hang around people like that, it's dangerous. I mean, it's just dangerous because he's going to do, he did to me what I'm going to do to you. He looked at me in the eyes and he said, God wants to use you, Rob, in Spain. How about you learn Spanish, and how about you commit to coming to Spain twice a year to partner with Paco and connect with him? And I'm like, I don't like learning languages. I barely passed English in high school. True. I mean, barely passed English. 
I hate learning languages. We had to learn two languages in high school, English and Afrikaans. I did a little bit better in Afrikaans. And then by some crazy joke by the Lord, he brings an Afrikaans teacher into this Hopkinton church to like, yeah. And now I'm like, you want me to learn Spanish? This is like a hard thing, Lord. It's like, I'm not like jumping for joy. Yeah, learn Spanish and get to Spain. Okay, okay. I'll try. I'll do my best I can. And Bonnie's been helping me learn it. And I'm, you know, slowly I'm getting there. But like, okay. But what I am saying is God will always challenge you. He'll take you out of your comfort zone. But it's super fun when God uses you. And God is using everybody. He wants everybody to participate uh, in church in some meaningful way. Uh, And I just would say this. It starts with having a heart which says, God, I want to be used. God, how can you use me effectively in this church? And it also requires a, a frustrating amount of humility where often the things that you think you can offer is not what the church leadership or what God actually wants to use you in. And if you're going to get used like I got used, God will choose to use you in the thing that you often feel the least confident in. For me, like learning Spanish. It's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Like at my age, you know, learning another language. But yes, God will challenge you because God is strategic. And I want to just end this service now and start up uh, worship team. Worship team, come on up. But I want to ask you this question. Will you be humble enough to allow God to speak to you and just allow God to put a seed in you as to what it is that he wants you to do? How are you going to serve? Okay, it's natural for us to say, God, I need, I need, I need. But God is also asking, how do you give? What, how are you going to help this church? In which ways are you going to participate? And the best way that this happens is when God tells you what to do, not me. And you say, you know, I just have a burden. I, um, I feel like God is stirring something in me. And maybe pursuing that. And the mystery that God does in this is He uses others to shape what you want to do. You don't have free control. Uh, leaders have to say, yes, no, I need this, I don't need this. And, and you have to have the humility to say, well, I'd love to do that, but you're not asking me to do that. And It's just, believe me, I, I, I could... I, speaking to the pastor at the Barcelona church, it was like incredible. The number of parallels of the tensions within church as you try and do church and people's expectations and pastor's expectations and God's expectations. There's a tension. But let me just say this. It's a wonderful tension. When we do it together, God will do something in your lives that's so exciting. Now, why don't you stand? Let's worship. But as we're worshiping, ask God to speak to you. Ask God to say, God, what is it that excites me? What is it that you stirred in me? How am I going to be part of what it is that you're doing in this church?